Today, we're taking a bit of a turn to interview one of the voices that we feel like has been helping create language for those of us that have been working to help see these emergence of these networks, and that's Frank Viola. And Frank's works have been a huge help for us here in KC as we've helped people rethink our paradigms, as we've helped leaders step into new ways of joining Jesus on mission, and now as we're even building training for elders and governing elders within our network. So we're thrilled about this conversation. Today, we're going to dig into Frank's newest book called The 48 Laws of Spiritual Power. So, <laughs> Rob, why don't you set up a little bit more like, yeah, that a little bit of that background. We were talking before we got on just how influential uh, Frank has been from a distance for us. Yeah, Frank has been, uh, of course, a prolific, very influential author. He's got over 30 books. And uh, for Brian and I, personally, in our journey, when we were beginning inside of the predominant model and we're just equipping ordinary people. One of the things we realized uh, in that journey is we were kind of doing multiple iterations of disciple making and, and training is um, if we don't have an intentionality to help with unlearning and the tearing down of uh, kind of old paradigms, there's not the space intellectually, spiritually, emotionally to rebuild and help people move into the new wineskin. And Frank has been so gifted by God. Like his books are like red pills, you know, from the <laughs> matrix. <laughs> like, like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just seen things that were maybe veiled before. And so uh, pagan Christianity has been really profoundly helpful and help, helping people deconstruct so they can re reconstruct. And that's what I love about Frank, your work too, is just, uh, it's not just a reaction against, it really is this beautiful, holistic invitation into the beauty of the original design for the church. And uh, this book, 48 Laws of Spiritual Powers, it's very different. It's about how does God's power really influence every aspect of our life and ministry comes out of four decades of lessons that Frank has unearthed, um, serving the Lord in so many different contexts, lots of failure and success and highs and lows and blood, sweat and tears. So we felt thrilled. Uh, we feel thrilled that we get to have this conversation with Frank today. So Frank, thank you so much for being here, man. Well, I appreciate the kind words, but you have to put the syrup away. I might go into a diabetic coma. <laughs> uh, let me say something about pagan Christianity. I wrote that many moons ago with George Barna. And mm -hmm. the interesting thing about that book, there are two things. One, we wrote it specifically for Christians that had left the institutional form of church or they were on their way out. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to give them green light permission that mm -hmm. they were not crazy and that they were on biblical and historical ground. We didn't write it to pastors. If we wrote it to pastors, uh, people who enjoy Sunday morning church services, we would have written it very, very differently. But the second part of it is that that was never to be a standalone work. And what I have found, Brian and Rob, is that when people just read that on its own, yeah. They are left with a misunderstanding and worse, they misapply mm -hmm. the message. That book is 15 minutes into a two-hour conversation. And so if, if somebody just reads that and they 
don't read the constructive sequels. <laughs> it's like hanging up 15 yeah. minutes into that two-hour conversation, and they never hear the rest of it. So just for your listeners, the second book in the series is Reimagining Church, mm -hmm. and that constructs what you were talking about. What were the leaders of the first century church like? What did they do? What is an elder? What's a shepherd? What's an overseer? It, it covers all of that ground. How did they meet? How did they gather together? How did they have community? The third book is From Eternity to hear, which really is an uncommon look at the mission of God, his eternal purpose. And then the fourth book is Finding Organic Church. And that really could have been titled Organic Church Planting or First Century Church Planting. And it talks about the four different ways that uh, kingdom communities, ecclesias, were raised up in the first century. And I'm one who believes that those ways of God, those patterns do not move. They're just as applicable today as they were back back then. Yeah. But unfortunately, many people ignore that. And so they try to start a true ecclesia on their own, and usually it fails. Either it fails or it does not look like what, what you had in the first century in terms of the power and the passion and the dynamic energy that, that marked the first century Christian. So anyway, I just wanted to share that because hey, Christianity, you know, it cuts both ways. On the one hand, we're happy that so many people read it and so many benefited from it. But on the other hand, it, yeah. it's been misunderstood big time. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's not a standalone work. Yeah. Yes. And right. I love the cohesiveness of how the, the works you're developing uh, mm -hmm. fit together to paint that beautiful, holistic yeah. picture. Yeah. So let me ask you about this one. Uh, tell us about yes. kind of the origin of the 48 laws and why you decided to add this uh, to the rest of the work that you've already developed. It was back in 2015, I had it on my heart to begin mentoring masterminds for kingdom leaders. Hmm. This would be pastors, teachers, missionaries, church planters, etc. And since then, we've had 10 altogether. And what we do in those masterminds is we talk about the struggles, the challenges that we who are in ministry face. And so a lot of the conversations that emerged out of those masterminds were sort of the discoveries that I reflected back on to give answers to some of the major issues that we who are in ministry on any level, all right? It's it's not just pastors and teachers, but any level. Those struggles and those challenges that we face and how to resolve them and why it is that some ministries really carry God's power and others do not. And even in our own lives, why is it that it seems that we may do ministry in one place and, and God's anointing is all over it, and then another time we do it and, you know, it falls flat. So that was the first part of it. The second part of it is one of my friends about 10 years ago gave me a bunch of books on audio. And it was the first time I was introduced to audio books. So on a long drive, I started listening to these books. And one of them was a book called 48 Laws of Power by a gentleman I never heard of. Mm. It's a secular book. It's not a Christian book. It's not a spiritual book. I listened to about four or five chapters and I had to stop because it's all about how to leverage the selfish nature <laughs> of the fallen human being to gain earthly power in relationships, in work, in business, in career. 
I mean, it's basically a study of how to leverage the flesh, okay? <laughs> how to sin skillfully. <laughs> and so I was intrigued by the concept because I thought, what if we had a book about the laws of God's power, which of course are counterintuitive, counternatural, and the exact opposite of what this guy was writing about. So I, I looked for a book like that. And if you know anything about my work, I write the book that I want to read, but I can't find. So because it doesn't exist, I write it. Therefore, um, I put together this book, 48 Laws of Spiritual Power. And what I found out very recently, uh, Brian and Rob, is that the book 48 Laws of Power, which again, I do not recommend it, that book has sold over 1 million copies, number one. Number two, the majority audience of that book are celebrities and prison inmates. Oh. So I thought, you know, if we had a fraction of the people yeah. who bought that book, right, <laughs> bought 48 Laws of Spiritual Power, which is the exact opposite message, I think we'd see a revolution in the body of Christ mm. and perhaps the world. Wow. Mm. So... I want to jump to a, a question just based on you're saying one point something million people read this, how to sin creatively. You want to write a book about spiritual power. So how how is it that you define spiritual power in light of this contrast to this sort of earthly fleshly power that we crave and long for? Yeah, and I'll add a footnote to that statement, and that is unfortunately fleshly earthly power, natural power is all too common in the house of God. Mm -hmm. One can use their own natural energy and power in the work of God. This is a real problem. Having said that, to your question, let me see if I can frame this. I, I think when Christians hear the word spiritual power, especially if you're in the charismatic world, you mm -hmm. immediately think of zapping demons and doing great wonders and eating cucumbers, as one of my friend's mother used to say. That's not what this book is about. It's not about the miraculous power of God, although it does apply to it and it does reference it. God's power is simply the dynamic energy of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot, you and I cannot, bear any kind of spiritual fruit unless we are operating in God's power. Only the power of God is going to bear fruit, lasting fruit. Now, we could rely on the energy of the flesh. We could rely on our own natural power source to preach, to teach, to evangelize, to write, to speak. But the problem is the impact is not going to be lasting, number one. Number two, it's not going to have any eternal value, either in ourselves, on our own account, or in the lives of other people. But spiritual power is different. I would put it in a sentence. God's power is necessary for bearing long-lasting, eternal fruit. God's work done God's way by God's power will receive God's blessing. And that's what the book sets out to do. It tries to uncork the principles by which God's power operates and what increases that power in our lives and ministries and what depletes it, what causes it to decrease. Mm. And I'm, I'm just curious if you give us a little window into your world, into what does Jesus-centered self-care look like for you in this season of your life? Whatever you're comfortable sharing, we'd yeah. love to have a, a look at that. Well, one of the things about my own rhythms is I am incredibly productive, 
since 2008, I've put out over a thousand blog posts, several hundred episodes, and over three podcasts. I've published 20 plus books. I travel and speak. I work with pastors and leaders, teachers. I have a network that I run, the Deeper Christian Life Network. So I'm incredibly productive. So I'm often asked, like, how do you put all of this out? Mm. And it's an interesting question because I guess I had to step back and think about that. <laughs> but I have throughout my life a rhythm of plotting. Mm. And so I don't really try to get a lot done in one space or in one time frame. I plod. I do a little bit at a time. It's the power of incremental change. And as I'm doing that, I am so, I'll use a strong word, I'm mortified but I'm going to exercise my own natural power to get any of this done. I have learned through experience that I can do nothing. I mean, literally nothing that's going to bear any kind of fruit. And so before I write something, before I stand up to speak, before I minister in any capacity, I am utterly and totally dependent and relying on my Lord that he is going to do the work through me. And so there's a real intentionality. And if we get to it sometime, it, it even goes beyond that. I have a mindset to fail, <laughs> but we can talk about that later, perhaps. I also build into my daily routine periods of rest, periods of relaxation. And a lot of that will be interwoven with turning to the Lord. And I have specific practices where I turn to the Lord and I fellowship with the Lord. I commune with the Lord throughout the day. And all I can tell you is after you know weeks go by and months, I will step back and I will look at the productivity and the things that have been created. And I'm just in awe by it myself. Mm. You know, you know, my wife is as well. She's like, how in the world do you put all this out? I really don't have the answer for that, except I know it's the Lord and he gets the glory for it, right? Because I know it's not me. Mm. There's a passage that's been very meaningful to me in 1 Corinthians. Paul basically had a very hard time on his second apostolic trip. You know, he was beaten and imprisoned and shamed in Philippi. He was thrown out of Thessalonica and banned. Then he goes to Berea, and he's thrown out of there, thanks to the Jewish leaders in um, Thessalonica who hated him. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then he goes to Athens, and he's basically rejected and dejected and laughed at. And so he comes to Corinth, and he is not in a good space mentally and emotionally. And he writes to the Corinthians, looking back on it, and he says, when I came to you, I was in fear and trembling. And so I take from that because later he says, I preached nothing but Jesus Christ. <laughs> I take from that he is in fear and trembling of his own powers. He knows he can't do anything. He's at the end of his spiritual rope, so to speak. And he knows that all he has to do is put all of his attention, all of his energy, all of his trust, all of his reliance, all his dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's who he is going to proclaim and nothing else. And so that's been very dear to me. It's been a guiding light in my own life and in my own ministry. Mm. Wow. I really want to go to another question that we had written down, but I'm, I wanna, I'm curious about this mindset to fail. 
you said we could talk about it later, but I'm wondering if we oh, we'll talk about, about it now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is counterintuitive. And a lot of what's in the book is counterintuitive. Well, the kingdom of God is counterintuitive, right? So one of the earmarks that you are tracking with the Lord's kingdom is that what you are seeing and experiencing and presenting, it's non-conventional. And it runs contrary to what we normally think and believe. But there is a law about success, and it rethinks success. So this is this is how it works in my own life. Whenever I go to minister, I set my mind on four things. One of them, I'm there to please and glorify my Lord. Mm. So I set my intention on the glory of Jesus Christ and the needs of God's people. And as best I can, I forget about myself. Mm-hmm. And I've trained myself to do this. I actually have a statement that I read Hmm. to the Lord, and it's in the book, just before I'm going to speak, so people can read that in that chapter. The second thing I do is I set my heart and my prayers that I want the Lord's people to have their eyes open to see Jesus Christ like never before. And that's basically my prayer. Lord, astonish them with a sighting of yourself. And by the way, one of the other things that's provoked this book is many, many pastors and teachers have asked me, pull the curtain back, Frank, and show us how do you create these messages that you deliver in these conferences? And and where where does the power and the passion come from? Where does the creativity come from? So I do have a chapter called Unveil Christ in the book. And so I talk about that, but that was one of the provocations of at least that chapter. So the third thing I do is I recognize, and this is the part you're asking, I'm here to fail. I am here to fail. Because if I'm succeeding, Jesus Christ is not. Hmm. But when I fail, the Lord succeeds. Hmm. Another way to put that is, it has been said that the best way to survive combat is to believe that you're already dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Come and down. so when I when I go somewhere to minister, I realize that spiritual warfare is involved. Mm-hmm. I cannot do anything spiritual. I can't make anything happen. Just as Jesus said about himself in relationship to the Father, he said, I can do nothing mm-hmm. of my own, right? Mm-hmm. And then he turned around and he told us, you can do nothing without me. So, mm-hmm. You know, the passage moved from the Father and Jesus to Jesus and us. Mm -hmm. Without the Father, Jesus could do nothing. Without Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. Mm -hmm. Basically, I realize it's the Lord's show. And what that does, brothers, is it puts the burden on his shoulders. It puts all the responsibility on him to do what he does best. Now, this last thing I do, and this may sound contradictory, but most of the things in the spiritual life are paradoxical. I do my best, but I don't trust my best. I trust the Lord. And that's, that's a quote from Dallas Willard, do your best, but don't trust your best. So I'm not going there to make a mess. All right. Don't, don't hear me that way. (laughs) I'm not going to intentionally be sloppy. No, I'm going to fail because if I fail, Jesus Christ is going to succeed. Mm-hmm. But I am doing my best, but I'm utterly relying on him mm-hmm. to do it because I cannot do it. And I know that's all paradoxical, but that's where you see big things happen. And there has been there have been very few times where I have ministered 
and I have not seen the Lord come through and at least touch or transform some people who are listening mm -hmm. in a big way. So that's that's my little riff on failure. So good, man. You've already been talking about the counterintuitive nature and, uh, you know, reminds me of Jesus with his parables. Um, this is for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. So I'm curious if you can give us, you know, another example of a law of spiritual power that gets neglected because the eyes to see and the ears to hear aren't there. The readers of this book are going to answer that question differently depending on where they are in their life and in their ministry. So, for example, some people, they would think that the one that's neglected the most is distinguished between critics. Every person who's in ministry, especially if you have a ministry that is impacting people, you're going to have critics. Mm -hmm. But there are three kinds of critics, and how you deal with them should differ. I've learned this throughout the years, and so you know, I'm passing it on to people who read this book. Another one that would hit some people as being neglected is refuse to take offense. You as a servant of the Lord in whatever capacity do not have the luxury of being offended ever. Hmm. And right now we live in a, in a world and in an age where outrage is celebrated. Hmm. It's the culture of outrage. It's great to be outraged, but outrage is not a fruit of the spirit. <laughs> hmm. To be offended, to take offense is one of the most dangerous things that a Christian leader can do. Mm. And so I go into that. So that's neglected. But I guess for me, I'll give you two that I think are neglected. No, I'm going to give you three. Gosh, I think a lot of these are neglected. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but um, beware the empty room is huge. Mm. And here's the big point. It's really called beware the empty house, but you could say empty room. It's the same yeah. concept. Powerful. You read that. But basically, many people have said to me, I wish I knew this when I was younger. And that is, you are going to be the most susceptible to temptation right after God has used you in power. Yeah, That is the point where you're most vulnerable. So that's one of the things that I, I don't hear anybody talk about. That. The whole chapter is dedicated to that. Another one that I see a lot of ministers get wrapped up in is results. How many people were impacted? How many people did I touch? You know, am I really making a difference? These are the kind of questions that go through the minds of, of many leaders. You know, do I still have my curveball? Is my slider still working? You know, what what's really happening here? And the whole chapter is about the principle of leaving the results with God. And I give some prescriptions on how to actually do that. And it's so freeing to do that, to be able to do the Lord's work and not even give one thought on the results, on how many, you know, fill in the blank were whatever, healed, delivered, transformed, saved, to be able to walk away free and having a satisfaction in Christ that you've done the Lord's work and, and you're oblivious to the results because that's not your business. That's his business, right? So there's a real power in that. But I guess the other thing I would add to the neglected ones, <laughs> you only asked me for one, I'm giving you more, <laughs> the necessary activity of co-working, hmm. which is hugely neglected. Yeah. Most of my peers, people I would consider to be peers, would prefer to be solo acts than the members of a team. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd rather be Garth Brooks than uh, 
a member of Led Zeppelin, for example. <laughs> and it's easier to do that because when you're a solo act, you make all the decisions yourself, you're fully and completely independent, and you don't have to contend with jealousy, which is really at the root of people who refuse to co-work. They don't want to be outshined by anybody else and the fear of diversity. But diversity is part of the kingdom of God. I mean, Paul of Tarsus worked with Barnabas for a time. They were diverse. They wouldn't have everything in common. Same thing with Paul and Silas. No two human beings in the Lord's work agree on everything. I'm quite sure that if you two, uh, I don't know how well you know one another, I would suspect quite well, but I would bet my bottom dollar you don't agree on everything. Would that be true? Of course, yeah. But yet you do this podcast together, right? But there are some ministers that are so afraid of diversity, they refuse to work with, with others. And then I guess the last one is it takes one to make one. And the big point in that chapter, of course, it expands it, is you cannot pass on to someone else that which is going to change their life if it hasn't changed your life first. Mm -hmm. If you haven't experienced it yourself, yeah. you can't expect anybody else to experience it now they may listen to you preach on it and they may say wonderful wonderful talk thank you so much that doesn't mean a hill of beans mm. it's not going to have any kind of registration or impact that's going to make a lasting difference if you haven't experienced it yourself mm. so that's it takes one to make one Amen. yeah that's a good good phrase we can definitely walk away with that one hang on to it so you, you've been a little vulnerable with us and giving us some of your personal rhythms of how you um, kind of return to Jesus in those spaces. Um, and you've talked about, you know, what others have maybe neglected. So this question, I'm going to go back to maybe you'd be willing to share <laughs> your own journey. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's one that's been particularly challenging for you to follow in your own life? It would definitely be the discouragement peace. And I guess part of my wiring, my natural wiring is always to see, you know, the part of the glass that's not full. <laughs> so I tend to be ultra critical on my own work. If I come out with a new book, I have learned, I, I learned this years ago, not to open it up and start looking through it because I will see all the things that I could have said better, right? Which leads to discouragement. The way I'm wired naturally is Let's say I speak in a conference and people who hear me, I see people weeping. I see people um, trembling. I see people, you know, jaw slacked. But the one person that makes a negative comment, <laughs> yeah, you, hang on you didn't talk about that. Why didn't you say this? You said Jesus was divine. But did you know he's human too? Why didn't you say that? Whatever it is, I tend to focus on that. But here's what I've learned you will never get rid of discouragement. Mm. You can overcome it in the moment, but it's going to come right back. What you have to learn to do is dance with it. And here is the most powerful insight that I have ever discovered. When I've used the example I just gave, when I have preached and that one person that's negative, or maybe there's someone falling asleep, I've not seen that yet, but you know, I'm sure there have been. I have seen somebody on a laptop doing their own work once when I was speaking, and that was discouraging. Here is the thing to remember. What you shared was not for them. Mm. It wasn't for them. And 
you have to focus on that woman who was sitting to the left of that guy who was sleeping or who was on his laptop who was mesmerized mm -hmm. you have to focus on the guy sitting behind him who was weeping you have to focus on the person in the second row who was taking so many notes their hand was aching mm -hmm. in other words it's what you focus on and no ministry is for everyone. If it's for everyone, then it's average. <laughs> it's mediocre, <laughs> right? It's for the masses. But if you're going to have a ministry that's remarkable and really impacts people in a powerful way, it's not going to be for everyone. In fact, it's not going to be for the masses. Mm -hmm. So anytime a minister of God's word gets discouraged because of what somebody said or how they didn't react or they should have reacted a certain way and that didn't happen just remember brother sister it wasn't for them mm. and don't rob the people who it was for who it's mm. changed radically don't rob them of it just mm. because you have a few doubters yeah mm. well frank we're we're nearing the end of our time together and uh i'm just curious what what are you what are you hearing in the early reports uh from those that have got their hands on the book what what things are they are they saying well the book dropped about a week or two ago and i have been really encouraged by the responses a number of pastors have written to me and some of the letters have said their emails really not letters have said things like i was never taught some of these mm -hmm. laws in seminary mm -hmm. and i sure could have used them 10 mm -hmm. years ago yeah that's one of the comments another brother who uh is is a pretty well-known leader reached out and he said i read the first two chapters of your book and that's all i've gotten Mm -hmm. finished so far God spoke to me directly through both of them mm. and this is off to a good start so that was encouraging other people have said that they have not highlighted a book like 48 laws of spiritual power ever in their lives mm. um one person just wrote me today and said you should have warned us that you need a highlighter I guess he has the print version obviously <laughs> some people have bought the print the audio and the Kindle after buying the audio they bought the other two versions because they've been so touched by it so so far the responses have been positive I mean it's just a matter of time where the naysayers and the doubters are going to come out and start criticizing but that's part of this business so it's fine I'm very thankful to the people who have read it and been touched by it and you know even if I never got that I would still do it I would still put the book out mm -hmm. but it's nice to have that confirmation it's encouraging well uh for those that are listening right now um how can they learn more about the 48 laws where should they go is there any kind of tasters that they can uh grab um for free uh, before they buy the book yeah absolutely if they go to 48laws.com and that's the numerals 48laws.com that's the landing page of the book and they can see all the different ways to purchase it in any version but there's also a taste test sampler so they could test drive the book 
look at some of the choice chapters in it, get a feel for it. And also we started putting up interviews, early interviews uh, on it. So they could listen to me talk about different aspects of the book. And of course, interviews always go deeper than what's in the book. So uh, I was reading the law of the empty house and uh, the Lord really spoke clearly to me. In fact, I'm mm. taking off the rest of today to just hang mm. out with Jesus. So mm. I'm grateful, brother. Thank you. Wonderful. And uh, we are looking forward to uh, hearing stories um, on the backside of this webinar. I hope you all purchase the book and dig in. Uh, Brian, anything else we need as we're wrapping things up today? No, just a thanks from me as well. Um, uh, all of the resources you put out, and I'm looking forward to getting into this one as well. So thanks for spending time with us today. Oh, it was my privilege. I enjoyed it, brothers. Thanks for having me. Well, hey, let me, uh, let me send you with a blessing, brother. All right. Lord Jesus, um, we are just so grateful. Every word that falls from your mouth is life to us. Mm -hmm. uh, Lord, the genius of your thoughts, Lord, they, um, they captivate us. And, um, and we just want to cleave just to you and your life and your goodness and your ways. And Lord, we just uh, ask in your name, Lord, we just bless Frank. We, we bless the 48 laws that this book would um, have a profound and catalytic impact, Lord, that's beyond merely human effort, producing merely human results. Lord, we pray, uh, Holy Spirit, um, for the illumination that only you can bring uh, to light up hearts and minds and souls and bodies as they read this. Lord, we thank you for the great, reformation Lord, that you're bringing to your church right now uh mm -hmm. and and the part that this book plays in that lord we, we bless this book with the fullness of everything you have in mind for it lord yeah. um, every dimension of mission and ministry uh that you have in mind we uh, agree together with your intent lord jesus um yes. and we'll give you all the glory uh this is for you Lord. we just put mm -hmm. a big bow on this and we lay it at your feet, Lord. I may bring you pleasure and joy and honor and worship. And we ask for all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.